And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today's episode will serve as an audio commentary for my feature film, Fractals. I did this on the previous episode where I created a commentary for Death and Life. Since Death and Life and Fractals are sister films of one another and neither have been officially released on optical disc, I've decided to use the podcast to create the audio commentaries for all of you. If you're listening on audio and want to stream the film along with this episode, I will let you know when I'm hitting play. You can watch the movie on Prime Video or Tubi TV. Tubi TV is free, but it does have ads. So uh, if ads start playing on your version there, it will go out of sync. However, for the YouTube version of this episode, I will actually be putting the movie up. I figured, what the hell, it's my movie, I can do whatever I want. And so uh, you can watch it on the YouTube channel. Just go to the Eric Norcross podcast and find the episode for this commentary. The film will play as the video, so in the video portion of it. So that's it. And uh, there are other platforms where the film is. You can go to my website, ericnorcross.com, and search. But it's easier just to get it off Prime Video honestly or if you just are interested in the commentary just go to youtube otherwise have a good listen and i'll see you on the other side and i'm hitting play now the title page for fractals it was shot from rockaway beach in queens new york which is the final location that Artie has to go to for the final riddle of the game that he's sort of involved in or the recruitment process that he's involved in. And it was important to me that the title be over the skyline of the city. Initially, when I did a, when I did a storyboard mock-up, uh, the title page was shot from Weehawken. And we ended up shooting a scene in Weehawken, but it was completely meaningless. Whereas the angle from Rockaway Beach 
has a lot of meaning for the story. So this shot of the train tunnel was shot with a Galaxy phone, an early version of the Galaxy phone. I had downloaded the Filmic Pro app for the Samsung Galaxy, I want to say S6 or 7. Like it was a really early version of the phone. And I was commuting to Sarah Lawrence College from Grand Central Terminal. I was in my first term of my MFA program. I was fresh off of Death and Life. Actually, Death and Life was either just about wrapped up or it was just finished. And I was submitting it to film festivals uh, because Death and Life, I, I, I finished Death and Life at the end of August, except for the music. And then into my first term in my MFA program, I started receiving the music and putting the music in. And so it was sort of in that era that I shot that shot that footage from the back of the Metro North train as we were heading north away from uh, Grand Central Terminal. And that was sort of the beginning of Fractals. When I got to the college, I started taking notes on my thoughts as it concerned that footage. As I was thinking maybe it would be my next movie. And I found myself talking about this need to escape New York, this need to get out of Dodge, so to speak, and what that means to me. And so I started talking about, well, where is the last stop on the train? Of course, it's not Cold Spring, but I talk about Cold Spring anyway, because I have a lot of thoughts on, on that town and the town's name and sort of that area of Putnam County. It's, it's a super strange area to me. And uh, it's not the last stop on the Metro North, but I was playing around with this idea of not knowing what the last stop is. And even if it isn't, maybe I'd be okay there, that sort of thing. And over the course of the, my MFA program, I wrote little essays like that. They were just these personal essays where I was just exploring these questions and these ideas. And it was all derived from the experience I had making Death in Life. Again, we're right off of the completion of Death and Life. That initial first shot was the first shot of this movie uh, that I had produced with Death and Life still a, a semi-work in progress. I mean, it was completed, but it didn't have music, that sort of thing. Um, and I was already dipping my toes into the next project, which was eventually going to become Fractals. But at this point, I'm still writing it. I'm shooting a lot of footage on the cell phone, experimenting with the quality of the cell phone. And ultimately, I put the footage away on a hard drive, and I don't look at it again for a long time. I got that part written. It's all good. And over the course of the next couple of years, I, I shoot off and on, but I'm really doing a lot more writing, and I'm trying to write a film that could be the sister film of death and life. It's very intentional. So I have this artist whose name is Artie. He, and I named him this time because I knew I was going to go for somebody who is an actor to play the role. And actors love to have names for their characters. So that's why almost every character in this movie has a name. It goes against my belief that they shouldn't have to have names, but Again, if actors want them because having a name for a character looks good on your resume, I'll go with it. So Artie's on this roof and he's and this essay that I wrote about escaping the city sort of becomes his voiceover narrative. And that's how we are introduced to him. 
I'm just talking about the screenplay at this point. Initially, uh, when we started shooting, when I started developing the movie to actually be shot, I had graduated my MFA program. So I actually went for two years without having a plan to make this movie. I was just writing it and developing it and playing around with ideas. At, at, right after graduating from my MFA program, I got a job working on a finance podcast and I used a lot of that money to buy all of the film equipment that I have now. So I ended up upgrading my camera. I upgraded my, I upgraded my sound capabilities. I upgraded my lighting capabilities, my grip capabilities. I basically gave myself a full studio capability <laughs> for the most part, even though I'm in the same apartment where I made death and life, uh, without a budget on a really tiny pocket HD camera. Now, all of a sudden, I had 6K resolution, and it's the autumn of 2019, and I am seriously entertaining actors about being in this movie called Fractals, which, to this day, does not exist in screenplay format. There are sides that are in screenplay format for specific scenes, but it's mostly just like outlines of, with scene ideas with accompanied essays that I wrote over the previous two years of my, of my MFA program. The first one being about escaping the city, but then there were others about how hard it is to find a job and how it feels like I'm putting a piece of my soul into a black hole, so on and so forth. And it, it's all in a binder, just kind of pressed together. And whenever I was out shooting, I had that binder with me and we were just like, we would just go through the pages if it was a script page, we would just use the side. If it wasn't a script page, I would just direct from behind the camera. All right, all right, say this, maybe do this. Hey, let's try this over here. It was a lot more like death and life in that respect. So it really was a mixed bag production. But in the autumn of 2019, I was just entertaining actors. And we, and me and we'll, we'll say brunette actor. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name her because she ended up not being in the film. But a brunette actress uh, and a balding actor in his late 30s uh, ended up being cast in the roles of Artie and Kate. And the actress who was initially was supposed to play Kate, she ended up really, uh, I invited her to help me sort of with some of the line production needs because I really needed help. I didn't want it to be like Death and Life where I was doing everything. And also, Fractals is a much more complex movie and I really just needed help keeping it together. The problem is, though, um, I offered I offered to pay everybody because I was making a lot of income off of that podcast, uh, and everything was on its way to becoming, you know, a, a financed indie production, but self-financed. But then the pandemic hit, and um, we had we had shot like one or two days with the original cast, but after New York lockdown in 2020. Um, we couldn't shoot anymore. And I, I asked the actress, well, would you consider shooting even though the lead actor has escaped to New Hampshire and he's clearly not coming back? And she said, yes. I'm like, I can't hire you for the production stuff anymore because we no longer have income coming in. By the way, my client who was that podcast ended up moving to Florida. He was one of the people who couldn't handle New York lockdown. But anyway, ultimately, I put out a casting call for Artie again with the intention of shoot it in the, shooting it in the summer of 2020. 
in the hopes that we would be able to get away with something despite lockdown. Uh, which, by the way, we ended up shooting it in July of 2020 after New York lifted sanctions on productions. But Tim got back to me as one of the many people who submitted. I, I talked to a few people, but a lot of them were still like, I don't know if I want to be in the room with people I don't know because of COVID and all that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, Tim was game for it. And he brought his girlfriend, Avis, to play Kate. But how that happened really was... Um, I had run out of money. I had no money. and But I still wanted to make this movie because I had nothing going on. What else was I going to do? And the original person who was supposed to play Kate was like, yeah, no. I really don't don't want to do anything if I'm not getting paid. And I'm like, even just to pass the time during lockdown? She's like, yeah. I'd rather just go protest. Because she was like really big on protesting. And so um, I'm like, okay. I guess that's that. So by that point, though, I was already talking to Tim. Tim was supposed to be her counterpart in this new casting version uh, of the movie. But after she left, I said, Tim, uh, do you know anybody who would be comfortable being in a room with you? (laughs) And his girlfriend, Avis, who was also an actress, uh, said that she'd do it. And it was just, you know, I had a phone call with Avis. I said, look, I'm clean. I have asthma, so I take COVID very seriously. Uh, so rest assured that I am clean. I don't have it. And um, you will get masks and you will get hand sanitizer. That's basically all I can do. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay. And after that phone call, uh, that was that. And these two guys came from a casting call. Might have been the same casting call where I found Tim, actually. But ultimately, after... Between autumn of 2019 and the spring of 2020, all this transpired. Like, it's such a mess, and I don't even have the timeline right in my head, but I somehow managed to get the production going for the month of July of 2020. And it had to be contained within that month because Tim didn't want to keep coming back to Staten Island or to New York City after the end of July. So I said, that's great. The sooner we can get it all in the can, the better. And we started shooting the movie in July, in, in the first week of July in 2020, and we started out down in the basement with just experimenting with Tim and his apartment and the black hole and trying to step through those sequences. Again, they weren't really mapped out in script form. They were more just like essays, uh, and they were the closest to what Death in Life was as a shoot. Only it was a little bigger because the camera equipment was bigger. The sound was taken more seriously. So I had to always worry about sound. And the lighting was different. The lighting was much more professional. But I was still doing pretty much everything myself. I was doing the set builds. I was fixing the props if they broke. And and I was doing all the camera operation. Sometimes Jan would help me with audio. But for the most part, it was just me and Tim down in the basement of this apartment building. The same basement where we shot the ending scene of Death and Life. And this basement stood in as Artie's apartment. And so, which is not, it wasn't the original intention. Basically, I was going to use my apartment, my regular apartment as Artie's apartment. And the black hole was going to slowly take over the whole apartment, right? And when we initially started filming the movie with the original cast, we actually filmed that. We filmed my apartment and the black hole. But when things changed because of the pandemic. I really wanted to compartment 
out the shoot from my living space. Uh, there was something about the change in the world where I was just like, you know what? We're in a different era. The vision I had for fractals is no longer applicable. Therefore, I don't want to try to duplicate what I was doing before. Instead, I'm going to do something different. And part of that was just changing what Artie's apartment was. So rather than giving him the one bedroom where he was initially going to live, I gave him a CD basement apartment. Oh, this skyline shot from of Lower Manhattan from Brooklyn Heights was the coldest day in a long time. It was bitter freezing. That, and that was a very hard shoot to do because... I was shooting the skyline at dusk, and for some reason, I couldn't get it dark enough. It's such a bright city that even though the sun had set like an hour ago, there was still light on the horizon, so it didn't look like night. And so I did a lot of work in post-production to make it look darker than it really was, which is why... That shot looks super strange. There's so many layers of effects and coloring in that shot. But this shot with uh, Avis and Tim was one of the last days with them together. And we were just walking around the city. We started out in Soho, in Tribeca. We just like walked around and improvised all of their various scenes that they had together that... Um, would help build out the relationship. So the flashback of them meeting for the first time and then walking away from the party they, they were just at. Um, we're down in South Street Seaport for this this portion. And we just kind of improvised, like, all right, let's just walk under these lights. These are beautiful. And it was a nightmare to stabilize all this footage because I don't have access to a good stabilizing device, especially for my big camera. So I was like walking backwards with a handheld camera and basically I learned how to work in DaVinci Resolve trying to salvage this footage. <laughs> the movie was shot in 6K resolution, sometimes with a full sensor being recorded, other times with it cropped to 235. My initial intention was to make the film 235, but ultimately I ended up for a 2 to 1 aspect ratio. And so a lot of the footage is really cropped and, and most of the footage though, at least the footage that was shot with the full 6K sensor doesn't seem like it's cropped at all because it retained most of the resolution. But you'll see there are certain parts where the footage seems a little more grainy. That's usually because it was shot on a cropped sensor and then cropped down to a two to one aspect ratio. But you don't notice it as much as you would because I mastered the movie in 2K resolution. So even though we shot the footage on a 6K resolution camera, everything got down to 2K. And the reason I did that was because a lot of the B-roll was shot on a cell phone. Like whenever you see the footage that he, shot, that he shoots with his orb of light, that's all cell phone footage. Usually a Galaxy uh, phone or... Later on, I upgraded to the Apple iPhone during production. And so a lot of that footage is just basically from the phone. But most of the footage is, for, footage is from my old Galaxy phone. But uh, because of that, though, I didn't want to master in 4K because you would definitely see like there's something wrong with the footage. And also, I still had that 
original first generation Blackmagic pocket camera, which I still have. I still use it. It's my favorite camera that I have, uh, the one that I shot Death and Life on. And I knew that I was going to be using that at some point, and we ultimately used it for all the sequences where you see Artie riding the subway or inside a subway station. That's the first generation Blackmagic pocket cinema camera, which only shoots high definition. And I've, I had already done a music video for Lindell, with that camera and I up it to 4k and while it looks decent, it doesn't look great. And so I ultimately decided I was not going to up that footage to 4k again and instead only go up to 2k and then master everything from the big camera down to 2k and it matches. It works great. Actually, I had some professionals say they couldn't even tell the difference, which is like really weird. It's like, Oh, are you really good at what you do if you can't tell the difference? Because I can see the difference. But anyway, I'll take the compliment, whatever. But anyway, when I talk about Lindell's, Lindell's music video, uh, it was the music video I, I directed for her as trade for her scoring Death in Life. Whereas with this movie she scored, I actually paid her. So if you end up working for me for free or for trade ultimately when I can pay you I will and this is a great example of it uh, because she scored death and life on trade I made that music video um, it, it was for her song called let it all crumble which you can see on YouTube and then later on she did the music for this now the music is rooted in a song called no sense no sense is a song written by Eric Anderson uh, he's a person from the area where I grew up and I knew the song because it was always covered by a local band that would play at the restaurant that I used to work in. When I was a teenager, I cooked at a restaurant on the Harbor in Maine. Every Sunday, this band would come and perform. Uh, it was Jeff Cusack and 4370. Oh, before I continue, if you look at the bottles where which represent Artie's sort of art supplies or his re, his refilling supplies, uh, the bottles are just kombucha bottles because I was really into drinking kombucha in that era. <laughs> I just thought it was funny just wrap the bottles into different colors and that represents his art supplies. But uh, anyway, I was talking about Jeff Cusack in forty three seventy. So he had a friend uh, performing with him for a few summers named Taylor Barden, who would often sing this song, No Sense. Uh, and I always loved the song, but um, the only version of it I've ever heard was Jeff's version that appears on his album and the occasional live version that they would perform in the restaurant. And so... Eventually, I got Eric's contact information, and I told him what I wanted to do, in that I wanted to not only root the entire score in the song, but I also wanted to do a cover of the song with a female vocalist as a tie-in for the movie. And he was all on board with it, you know? He's just like, you know what, I don't even remember writing it, so go ahead, do it. I, like, he knew he wrote it, but he said he didn't remember writing it, which I thought was absolutely funny. But uh, ultimately, uh, that's how it kind of happened. And I, I gave the song to Lindell and I said, I want to root everything in this song. 
I don't know why I want to do it. I just want to do it. And we'll figure out how it works with the project as we go into it. And she was all on board. It's such a wonderfully weird experimental approach to it. It's different. Um, it's sort of embracing the rules I learned on Death and Life, where the more experimental and weird you go, the better it is. And with this movie, you know, everything was approached with that in mind. So rather than giving Artie a video camera, or I think at one point I experimented with giving him a Super 8 camera to film with, I just said, you know what would better represent what he's doing as a video maker? Just an orb of light. He is capturing light. He's painting with light. That is what he's doing as a filmmaker. So I just ordered these orbs, uh, these light orbs from Amazon. And the small palm ones are the ones that he carries around the city and quote unquote films with. And then when he has to download the footage to a computer or upload the footage to the, for the world to see, uh, that's represented by him putting a small orb together with a big orb. <laughs> and that's that. And so that's sort of the basic representation of what a videographer in my universe would, would be doing. And uh, also because he is an artist with an artist's mind, he is capable of communicating with animals. Uh, this is just something that, again, the weirder we go, the better. It's something that I wanted to experiment with. And because I had some disposable income initially, I went and bought some various critters to play around with. It's a scene that I would have never dreamed of doing prior to this, and I probably won't do it again. But I'm glad I did it, because it really works, at least for me as an experimentalist. I, You know, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, I would have never dreamed of doing something like this. It's really something that I found my way to because... All the weirdness and death in life works. By the way, the voice of Birdie here is uh, a wonderful voice actress from out of Texas. She remotely recorded this uh, with her own gear at home. Um, I thought she was really, really clever in the way she delivered all of her lines. Her name is Lauren Elena uh, and... Uh, Actually, the voice of Evangeline the Angel, who we'll, who we'll meet soon, uh, she was also a, remote, a remotely recorded talent. Uh, Melissa Magdal Medaglia Zeller, or Melissa Zeller is how I think of her in my head. But she, uh, yeah, she had her dialogue recorded on Pro Tools, I think she had a friend who was a professional pro tool recordist and for that i actually zoomed in on that recording session that was fun to be able to give direction through zoom uh, i guess it's the first time for everything and the pandemic is a great excuse for all those first times but uh i didn't mention them earlier but in that in that first scene where Artie and kate are talking with their politically aggressive friends Dean and Jess, or Jess and Dean, named after the characters from the Gilmore Girls. <laughs> the, those two men were played by Leo Danzig and Sergio Myers. Uh, and that was just a one-day shoot that we did towards the latter half of production. I think it was one of the I think it was actually the last day of the shoot that we shot the, that kitchen scene. 
uh, and all of the inserts of them that will come later. Because later on when he's having his meltdown, uh, we see flashes of those two characters giving insults, tell, telling Artie some of the worst things. I think at one point they tell him to suicide himself because he's such a bad artist. But uh, all that was shot the last day. And actually at the end credits, if you watch to the very end, you see us toasting with wine glasses. That was because it was the last day and I ended up toasting wine with everybody. Although... Tim and Avis didn't drink the wine because they weren't old enough, but I told them I wanted to film the toast anyway, just because it was such a triumphant feeling, you know, having made this movie after getting two years of development, but then with the pandemic shutting it down and not thinking I was going to get it started again. All this footage of New York City, all this B-roll of the skyline, that was shot with the HD camera. That's that's original first generation black magic pocket cinema camera footage. So that's what it looks like upscaled to 2K. <laughs> Doesn't look bad. It looks worse if you try to upscale it to 4K. But again, apparently even professionals couldn't tell the difference. So whatever. <laughs> oh my God, this day where we went out to Flushing Meadows Park was the hottest day like that was a hot summer, but something about that that day was just brutal. And there was like no water supply because it was the pandemic. They weren't running the fountains. Uh, they weren't running the water fountains or even the drinking fountains. Like there was no no water anywhere unless you were willing to go to like a pharmacy. Oh, that was brutal. And I should tell you too, like this is the first production I've done as a licensed driver or at least as a licensed driver who had a car. When I did Death in Life, I had gotten my license by that point, but I didn't have a car. This movie is the first movie I made with a car. So we were able to get out to locations that I probably wouldn't have bothered with otherwise, like Flushing Meadows, Corona Park, but also a sequence later where he's actually driving. See, this is a, a view from Weehawken, New Jersey. I would have never put this in the movie had I not had access to a car. Because getting out to Weehawken is a bitch if you don't have a car. But you know what? It's a wonderful view of New York City, and I really wanted it in the movie. Ever since I saw Independence Day, which films from this side of the river, uh, for the scene when we meet Jeff Goldblum's father, when they're playing chess, uh, I always wanted that shot. So that's why we shot in Weehawken. Alexander got shot just a little few clicks from there. This, that's Alexander Hamilton Park, I think. I think that's what it's called. But that, this is one of my favorite scenes in the, in, in the movie just because of that shot there. <laughs> I love the skyline. The skyline. I like, as a visual artist, that skyline is just so dope. But that's the only footage shot in New Jersey for this movie. Uh, most of it was shot in all the other boroughs. Uh, the Bronx is the only borough we didn't go into. Although we did take the ferry to, the ferry to Soundview to get some of the footage of him on the ferry. Uh, so that's why I say it shot, it shot in all five boroughs because technically we, we were in Soundview. But, uh, and, and some of the train footage from the Metro North was also in the Bronx. But for the most part, um, we avoided the Bronx. <laughs> just because I, I don't know my way around it really that well. And there really just wasn't anything that inspired me to want to go there. But uh, all the other four boroughs 
for four bor four boroughs we definitely were in quite extensively especially queens brooklyn and staten island so again at the time we shot this i was living in the one bedroom in staten island this is the basement of my new york city apartment building which is essentially a townhouse converted into an apartment building this is the same basement from the end of death and life it's that's the, actually the same wall that you see behind the city planner in death and life only here it's much brighter and cleaner because i actually went down and i repainted the whole room i put a new layer of white paint over the brick i put all that green along the sides of those windows that has these like false windows dividing different sections of the basement so i just like painted them uh, and just try to bring a little joy down there, a little bit of life. Cleared out all the cobwebs, cleared out the spiders, brought some rugs down. Oh, there's James. James passed away uh, this past June, in June of 2022. Um, I didn't know that was coming. That in two years from that, from shooting that, that he wouldn't be with us anymore. But we have this documentation of him and basically how I'll remember him. He used to be the, the hallway cat or the stairway cat. All the people who live in our apartment building at the time that we were making this, and even right now, they're all artists and uh, really cooperated with this production. But one of the things I really appreciated about them was when James wanted to get out of the apartment for a while, we let him sit in the stairwell. And they just, they, they tolerated that. And they actually got to know him. And, and of course, now my cats are fighting. <laughs> and they got to know him. And he became sort of a staple of the building here. And even some of their guests who visited them got to know James. And so I integrated that into this story because I had so much B-roll of James hanging out in the stairs. And so, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, when he passed away in June, he had he had developed cancer. And I didn't fully understand what was happening with him, that his that the clock was ticking. And then he just he died right on my my editing desk. I was holding him in my arms. But I'm so glad that I have this documentation of him. This is like him at his best and he was such a good performer this isn't the only movie he's been in he's not only just super photogenic but he's just he knows how to be on camera i can't say that about my other cats james was just he was an he was a cat that was an actor <laughs> um and i we improvised the scene of tim singing to james the lyrics to no sense because i found out that tim can sing and I said, well, why don't you sing the lyrics to the song that's going to be the root of the music? He's like, okay. So I just had him singing to James just as an experiment, and I kept it because I liked James and I liked the song. So there's also some aspect to him sitting in the cat in the hallway with the cat or in the stairwell with the cat because. That's what I would often do with James. And even with the cat, the other cats that I have here, sometimes they like to go out into the stairwell and hang out. And I'll be forced to kind of just hang out with them and 
sometimes I'll take my notebook out there and I'll go sit with them as they make muffins on the landlord's carpet. <laughs> so these dream sequences are very tropey or cliche-ish. It's like faux, artsy-fartsy, like trying too hard. But you know what? I never really do sequences like this. I think the, I've only done one other project that had nightmares like this. And that was a short film I made called Lipstick Lies. And in the in Lipstick Lies, the, the woman was having nightmares about a husband from a parallel reality that she was sure she was married to, but in her current reality, she was no longer married to, and it was haunting her. And with this, though, I wanted the dreams to be more like uh, warnings that he is not living the life he's supposed to live, that he's not being as creative as he could be, that he's not pursuing things the way he's supposed to be pursuing them. Because I, I, I have, as a creative, I get these anxiety-ridden nightmares where uh, I'm being told that I'm not creating the work I'm supposed to be creating and that I need to try harder. And that's where these projects come from. They come from these realizations that I should be making movies that are much more personal. So I realized kind of partway through the production that I wanted some scenes of him doing normal things that people do in society. So I just had him brushing his teeth <laughs> because why not? We never see him. We never see how he bathes or anything like that. I'm like, well, we'll just show that you can do this stuff. We just don't show it. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite shots is this this train coming into the station here in Lower Manhattan. This was one of the shots that I made on the original Blackmagic HD camera. So this train ride out to Coney Island was all shot with that. Some of the Coney Island footage was shot with it. And then when we decided to use the big camera, that was a separate day when we, when we drove out to Coney Island. Uh, so... The best way to think about it is um, when we're out and about, I tried to use the small camera. Ultimately, we really only used it this one time, but um, when we're out and about with the big camera, it's a lot more limited. I mean, the thing is supposed to be a pocket camera. It's the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K, but the fucking thing is heavy as balls. Like, it's not a pocket camera. It's misleading. And it's definitely, like, even though it's supposed to be the successor to the original pocket camera, I don't think they're, they should be considered as part of the same sort of lineage. Because this original camera that you're looking at right now, I mean, this footage is gorgeous. There's a magic to it that that other camera doesn't have. Like, yeah, that other camera shoots really crisp, professional video, but this is just magic. This is what I think of when I think of black magic. This was the movie from... This is the footage uh, that Death and Life would have looked like had it been in color. Because it's the same camera that I shot Death and Life on. Think about that. Like, what would Death and Life look like in color? It would look like this. So, yeah. I'm going to re-edit that. And then I'm going to restart the commentary when he's with the, on the famous shot of the wheel looking up at him. This is one of my favorite shots. Again, it's shot with the original HD camera. And 
I don't know why I like it. I think I just it's the something about the blues and and I, blue isn't normally my favorite color, but I just I love the way that looks. And then we cut from that to the six K camera, and now you can see the difference. Like yeah, it's professional, it's crisp, it is beautiful in the most basic sense, but it loses the magic that that original camera have. And I I don't know what it is about that other one. I just love it. That's why I haven't gotten rid of it yet. My my initial idea was to get the 6K camera and then sell the HD, but I don't know, man. There's a magic to it that never made it to the newer cameras. Maybe somebody can explain that to me. Anyway, this was another day that we went out there. Um, as you can see, the sky is completely different. When I, when I went out with him with the HD camera, which was actually after we shot this. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just us, the small camera, and a subway train. Whereas this day was part of the main shoot because we drove out there with my gear, with the big camera. And uh, the actress that's following him, Elena, she, she lives out there. So she just drove herself to the location because she was familiar with it. And again, we just improvised it. Like I knew I wanted him to walk around and eventually be followed. You know, it wasn't storyboarded. It was just like, you know, I, I've seen Mr. Robot. I know how to film Coney Island. <laughs> or there's that other movie that uh, about the heroin addicts. That's a Coney Island movie, too. <laughs> it's like you just go and, and you kind of remember what other shows and films looked like and Maybe you want to copycat him or maybe you want to do something different. It really depends. Like when you see him against certain backdrops, that's usually because we find these backdrops and we want to use them, especially if they're walls or if they look really dilapidated or urban, urban-y. Uh, I usually spring for it. But uh, I don't know why I decided to do this moment out on the pier. Ultimately, though, uh, I found the pier really difficult to shoot. There's just too much light. If there's too much or too little light, I find it very difficult to find an exposure that I'm happy with. And uh, then my, my special effect, which is basically just an edit. <laughs> She's vanished. Oh, my God, where did she go? If you pan the camera left, will she be there? Maybe not, because he doesn't seem to see her. <laughs> Maybe she's behind me. <laughs> But I, I love tricks like that. It's so simple and straightforward. And then he's right where she was. And that was deliberate. That is basically like, huh. Is she recruiting him to do what she does? Is that, is that why where he is where she was? Anyway, this is the stuff that's going through my head when I'm blocking some of this stuff. But... It doesn't always work. Sometimes it does. And most people will see right through it or not see it at all. I don't think I've ever received feedback about that moment. And we're back to the HD camera. Oh, now I really see the difference. <laughs> and I think it's really only because this footage is so heavily stabilized. The more the camera moves, the more it's stabilized digitally. Because I don't have stabilization device, uh, devices at the moment. Uh, and even if I had it, I probably wouldn't use it because it draws too much attention to itself. That's one of the things 
about being a filmmaker. When I'm out in public, even if I have a permit, I don't like to draw attention to what I'm doing. So I try to use as minimal gear as possible. And stabilization is a piece of equipment that often draws attention, especially from security guards or police. Yeah, and I think this was uh, one of the few shots on the subway that was actually done with the 6K camera. I think we stepped on for, for one stop and then immediately stepped off because I just wanted to see how that camera dealt with the subway and the movement and whatnot. I think it photographs quite well down there, actually. And now we're back to shooting on the 6K for one of the days that we were just shooting around the city. I think we this was the day we went up to Soundview and then we came back and we got off in Midtown and then we just walked around the east side and filmed all of this. And we walked all the way down 2nd Avenue and we filmed the scenes outside of the Anthology Film Archives. He he ends up finding the riddle, the first riddle addressed directly to him <laughs> right now in this scene. That's the Anthology Film Archives. That's where I had my first public screening of a film, my first film festival screening, my first film series screening with New Filmmakers New York. I volunteered there for a number of years. And um, yeah, I have a warm spot in my heart for the Anthology Film Archives. That's a museum, by the way, for those of you who don't know it. It's a museum for film, specifically experimental and avant-garde film. And uh, it made sense for me to do this scene here. It wasn't initially supposed to be here. It's actually one of the few scenes that I wrote in script in screenplay format, but I actually had it. Uh, I had it, the original idea was for him to get a call for an interview, him to go to an office building, go to a floor, but the floor would be empty. But by the elevator, there would be this riddle addressed to him. But of course, with the pandemic, I wasn't allowed to go into any more offices anymore. I was going to film it at my old college, Empire State College, because in the city, Empire State College is essentially in an office building. So I would have filmed it there. However, none of that was happening. So I had to improvise. And I thought, well, what's a meaningful location where he can find a riddle to start off, to kick off this sort of plot? And I thought, well... The Anthology Film Archives makes a lot of sense for me personally. So, And the brickwork is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, look at that. The way that photographs in 6K resolution is just amazing to me. So, I also remember that close-up of the riddle with the sidewalk behind it. That was so difficult to stabilize. That's why I don't cut back to it. You only see it once very briefly. Voose. Because the stabilization on that was a bitch. And then uh, moment of black before we go into the next sequence where he's trying to solve the first riddle. This is the top floor of the stairwell in my apartment building. Uh, I ran I ran it by my neighbor who lives on that floor. I said, hey, is it okay if I film some, something up here? He's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> by the way, that neighbor has been on my podcast Uh in season one, if you look for an episode with, uh, actually, I don't think you would want me announcing his name on the commentary, so I'm not going to say it, but he was in season one of my podcast. <laughs> I actually had both of my neighbors from the building in season one, so I think that's very interesting. 
I actually forgot about that till now. But yeah, initially he was supposed to be on a rooftop, but um, we decided to break it up just to make it more visually interesting. So he starts off in the stairwell and then he goes to the rooftop, which, is, which isn't even a rooftop. And the original shoot that we did, we actually shot the original cast on a roof in Brooklyn. And it was a very New York City looking roof with water towers and the skyline. Uh, but ultimately, uh, when I lost the original a a Kate actress, I also lost that location. So we just did it out on the ledge of our apartment building, which is essentially my ledge. Uh, and that was that, which is why it doesn't look like New York City at all, because it's in Staten Island. Those are Staten Island trees behind him and the library lions. Oh, yeah. So Fortitude and Patience here are the library lions. The, you can see the life-size version of them outside of the main branch of the New York Public Library, uh, which is essentially what that riddle is telling him to go to the library. <laughs> uh, and the reason I decided to use Fortitude and Patience, that is a riddle that I wrote years ago for a novel. I wrote a mystery novel where the detective has to solve a riddle to find a clue. And the riddle was between fortitude and patience, you will find resolve. Well, patience and fortitude are the lions, so obviously you go to the library. That I, I just wanted to use the riddle in something that has a chance of making it out into the world. I was really proud of that riddle, even after almost 20 years. Actually, by this point, by the point that I've recording this commentary it's been 20 years <laughs> which is uh, actually no not quite actually as a, maybe in 2024 it would have been 20 years but uh, whatever neither here nor there the library by the way uh, was one of the builders was an ancestor of mine see one of the contractors on that project was a build a, a company out of Massachusetts called the Norcross Brothers. And I just thought you'd like to know that. I was thinking about that while I was shooting the library scenes. That my bloodline is responsible for the construction of that magnificent building. Anyway, do you guys want to know the story of how Evangeline the Angel became a mannequin? Because <laughs> initially she was supposed to be cast by an actress. Actually, you know what? I'll, I'll talk about the color grade of the library scene since we're here, and then I'll talk to you about Evangeline. Basically, uh, I fucked up shooting the footage, and I was having a really hard time creating a good grade for the, for the color, and I didn't know what to do. And I ended up sending the movie to, to South Korea. I sent the scene to South Korea, and I, and I had a professional there mess around with it. And this is what they sent back. And I'm like, you know what? It'll do. It's a quick scene. Uh, it was a hot day. Uh, it was a really bright day. We were shooting in shadows on a really bright day. And I couldn't see the screen, the monitor screen of my camera very well. And I just, I completely overexposed it. And that's why it does not work from a color grade standpoint. You can also see it transitioned as I went up from shadow to light, we had to do like a transition into two drastically different graded shots, even though they're the same shots. And it's just like, 
yeah, I completely fucked up this scene from a visual standpoint. But that's okay. It's almost over. You'll get through it. Anyway, this is the second riddle. I made all these riddles, by the way, with uh, acrylic paint and canvas and wood. Again, this is the same day from the library scene. We're only on the other side of the library in Bryant Park. And I got a little more experimental with the visuals just because the grade is so just difficult to deal with. But this is where we start realizing that he is being watched and that they're speaking Russian. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about Evangeline as, as Tim or as Artie uncollapses the wave function of reality. <laughs> Don't ask. It's just another one of those essays that I wrote when I was in my MFA. Anyway, we shot this the same evening that we shot him and Avis walking through South Street Seaport. This was, this was just another scene in that list of scenes that we shot. Avis is actually off to the side talking with Jan. But uh, I was going to cast an actress for the Guardian Angel, right? And she was just in the script as Guardian Angel. And there was one actress that I really wanted. She had actually submitted for, for Kate. And I said, well... We At one point, we were talking about doing another film together called Skittish, which was the screenplay I wrote as the thesis for my MFA. She really liked Skittish. She liked the main character. She says, okay, I'll play the guardian angel in your in your Fractals movie if you can give me the lead to Skittish. And I'm like, well, you, I want you to have the lead to Skittish. And she goes, well, I want it in a contract that Skittish will be your next movie and that I'll have the lead. And I'm like, I can't guarantee that skittish will be my next movie because of the way I make movies. Like I want it to be, I'm going to try to make it be, but there's no guarantee that it will be. And you know what? Had I signed that contract, I would have been in a lot of trouble because, because of the pandemic skittish <laughs> is nowhere near being my next movie. Like the pandemic fucked up my timeline. So ultimately though, because she wanted that in writing, I had to let her go and ultimately replace her with a mannequin which again it's the same rule that's that that i started with death and life when in doubt go weird and the weirdest decision i could make is to, to replace her with a mannequin <laughs> and so that's what we have we have a mannequin and a voiceover actress and voila that is your guardian angel all the black hole from this point on is basically just shards of 20 ounce raw canvas painted black some of it was dipped in black. Some of it was just painted black. Uh, initially, it was just a piece of round wood painted black, which is very obvious when you look at the footage. But now we're in canvas territory, which means the black hole has become sentient and is growing out of control. And it can mean anything to you. You're welcome to interpret my movie any which way you want. But to me, it just kind of represents the depression one can feel when they're starting to feel desperate, especially artists who don't feel like their life is turning out the way they wanted it to be, or if they're not living the best art life that they can. That depression can start to take hold and take over your space, your personal space and yourself. And that's what the black hole represents in this movie, by the way. I'm not sure if, sure if that actually came across, 
but it could also mean whatever it needs to mean to you for you to sort of plug away at this. It was important for me to create a visual uh, sort of thread of him collecting these riddles. So I decided to have him lean the first two riddles against fortitude and patience or patience and fortitude. Uh, and then over the course of the movie, he just keeps adding riddles. And so there was this one moment when we were down in the basement where um, I just said, all right, put the first riddle, put the second riddle, put the third riddle, and I'm recording the whole time. And then over the course of the movie, I split it up. So you just kind of see all the riddles being added throughout the progression of the story. But really, we just kind of put them all in sequence with one another at the same time. A little bit of filmmaking trickery or editing trickery. So all the scenes inside the apartment were filmed in one week and one day. So the first week of July plus a day was all of Artie's scenes down in the basement. So all the apartment scenes, the backyard scenes, the stairwell scenes, everything out on the ledge there. That was all just one week plus a day. Um, oh, here's, here's what the, the riddles are actually made of. Acrylic paint, illustration marker, raw 12-ounce shards of canvas, and printed and primed canvas on wooden board. So I guess the primed canvas came on the wooden board because I would have never, never primed a canvas myself. But I probably wanted the boards, so I just bought boards from Michaels that had primed canvas on it. And then the 12-ounce raw, raw canvas is the same canvas that I used for some of the set pieces as well as the black hole. And by set pieces, I mean like the there, there's some moments where the backdrop is just canvas. Uh, like in when he goes to reality proper and he meets me, the filmmaker or the film deity. The thing that he's looking through is just canvas. It's the same canvas. I bought a whole roll of it from Blick and just basically cut it up and used it however I needed. Uh, that was part of the visual language of this movie. And there's a reason for that that I'm not going to go into, but um, it was really important to me that I use raw canvas. All footage from New England were shot on various trips over the course of about a year. So much like Death and Life, where I was integrating footage from my hometown that was shot on a separate trip that was separate from the production of Death and Life. Uh, there was another trip that I had made to Maine where, again, I've just generated footage to be used somewhere. And it just ended up being used in fractals. I do that a lot. Like every time I go back to my home state of Maine, I generate new footage to be used in a project. And somehow, some way, they always end up in my art house feature films. <laughs> Again, uh, the footage of Maine, and you saw some of it earlier, and you, and I think you might see it again. I don't remember, but um, all of that was shot in high definition with the original first generation Blackmagic HD camera. I would say it took me about six months to make all of the props and set pieces out of canvas. Um, as much as possible, I tried to manufacture everything, anything that's electronic based, like the orbs, I did, obviously did not because at that point I had no ability to. 
I think now I probably could. Now that I've built a guitar, I have soldering capabilities. However, I would probably still avoid electrical work if I can get away with it. <laughs> um, the scene with Avis and Tim is in a park in Brooklyn. So you saw Grand Army Plaza, which means we're in Prospect Park. So if you're a native of New York City or Brooklyn, uh, you can use the visuals to put together where we are specifically. Initially, this scene was supposed to be in Central Park, but now that I've invested in my audio, I'm really sensitive to just how much noise exists in Manhattan, which is like why there's like no good dialogue scenes in Manhattan. Like every time you see a scene in Manhattan where there's dialogue, it's all ADR. And you can tell that it's ADR because ADR is obvious in every single movie. Uh, whereas, you know, Prospect Park isn't as loud as Central Park. So, and we were also in Brooklyn anyway. I, I believe this was the same day we shot the Coney Island scene with Elena. And because we had the car, we're like, oh, why don't we just zip over to Prospect Park and do this scene? Is Avis available? And since Avis and Tim were staying in Brooklyn for this shoot, uh, we managed to work out the schedule so that after Coney Island, we drove to Prospect Park, shot this scene. It's remarkable, too, that I was able to find parking. I am not the best at finding parking, but somehow I managed to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's where we get Tim talking about fractals, finally, for the first time. And uh, I, was, I, I know I was trying to do something with fractals and the art life and, and fitting in with society, but not wanting to fit in in certain ways. And... I don't know that I really achieved what I was going for with the with the contrast, but you know, at least I tried. So now we're in Red Hook. We go from some of that stock footage, which I licensed from Vimeo, <laughs> into uh, the scene that I shot in Red Hook with Tim on a beautiful overcast day. I love overcast so much. Uh, not my best color grading job, but it works. It's standard. It's a standard, viable, passable scene. Uh, the woman in this is Lise Locasio. And the moment I found out she can fight, I said, you're going to have to kick the shit out of my main character. She's like, oh, okay. Uh, she was a little hesitant because she, she's been on a lot of shoots where I think she thought, it was unsafe to do so that not people were taking that people weren't taking it seriously. And I said, Tim will take you seriously. You just guide him. You're in charge. Uh, and that's what we came up with. She kicks the shit out of him and then gives him the, the riddle. <laughs> she verbally gives him the riddle, but then she gives him the riddle. So anyway, that's our red hook scene. And of course, we find out that she's really doing this because she wants to get out of the contract that he might end up in. So we're kind of, in a way, seeing what his future could be if he follows through with all this and accepts the job. Handed a few ways. Acceptance to a local college, an offer of employment, or from a friend or family that's already local. College was my invite. But now that's happened and passed and alone I find myself. I met a man from... So, this is a 
this voiceover right here is an idea that I had in Death and Life where he's talking about some some people in, in Death and Life Artie or the artist talks about when you come to the great city you either come with or without invitation and that could have an effect on how easy your life is here and Artie is saying the same thing about New York and the difference is of course uh, Artie came to New York because he got into an education program here. So he probably went to school here or something. I don't actually explore how he came to New York, but I imply that he got accepted into school here and just stayed. But staying hasn't quite worked out for him. Whereas the artist in Death and Life wasn't invited and came on his own own accord without family or professional contacts. And that that is why it didn't work out for him. So it's a thing where... Uh, it's a thing I see all the time where people who are, seem to be invited to the city tend to fare better. So an invitation can come a multitude of different ways, but usually an, an offer of employment or because a family member has invited you to stay with them till you get your feet on the ground. And those are the people who fare better because they have a support base. At least that's what I'm going for. I don't say it directly, but that's the implication. Anyway, she has been cut loose from her contract with them. <laughs> They've cut the shackles loose. And now they're back to speaking Russian. So here's the thing. Here's what happens. So um, this is obviously filmed before Russia invaded Ukraine. But uh, I got all these submissions from Russian people because I had a character called the Russian Seductress, which you will see in a scene coming up. Uh, and uh, I don't know if she was always going to be Russian, actually. I don't even think I described her as that. But I got all these Russians submitting for that. Like these two ladies submitted for that scene uh, in the brothel. And I'm like, well, why don't we have some dialogue where you're speaking Russian? That'll make my film a little more worldly. And I can tie it in in some way. Just because it's, again, the rule is go weird or go home. And so we cut to more stock footage <laughs> of Brooklyn. And we're going to go to what I call the Russian brothel or the Russian honeypot. Uh, and it's B-roll of Brooklyn, but really we're just going back to my apartment. <laughs> but I'm trying to build it out so that like Artie is borough hopping to different neighborhoods because I really just want to see the different neighborhoods. And so we get the L train or the elevated train uh, and we we get some of the scenery of Brooklyn, but then we're back in Staten Island. But you don't know that because it, you know, some of these buildings all look like they belong in the same borough. And there's my cat, B or Juliet, <laughs> sitting in the window. There's our actual doorbell. Ding! And that's the same stairwell as his building. I just don't show the rug because. And there's Lana playing the, the seductress. Anyway, her and Elaine are both auditioned for this scene. And initially the idea was to go... Full, nude, straight up. We were just going to make this movie uh, a hard R. <laughs> but uh, 
Lana talked me out of it. Yeah. I'm a sucker. Actresses are, are very capable of talking me out of uh, that kind of thing. It's it's really hard to do those types of scenes when you don't have the budget to sort of buy your way to getting what you want or what you initially intend to get. So instead, I decided, you know what? We'll just go weird again. Let's let me order a Soviet Union flag and we're going to put it up in the room and I'm going to get red red comforter, red pillowcases. I meant to get brighter red curtains, but on on Amazon they looked more red than they actually are. They're more maroon curtains and they're still on my windows right now. And actually that comforter is on my bed right now, although it's been washed several times since, but that's that was my bedroom. That's technically the bedroom to my apartment, but it's now an office. There is a cubicle in there. <laughs> My editing system is in there. Actually, I'm recording in that room right now. That's where I'm recording and watching this. But we rearranged the apartment, so that bed's no longer in there, in here. That fireplace behind him uh, is a storied fireplace. A cat gave birth in that fireplace. <laughs> a street cat that we rescued. And this is the tease to make him nervous. There was a lot more to this. There was a lot of rationale for it, which kind of gets lost in the thick of production. Because when you're when you're trying to get this production going, you tend to forget why you wrote certain things or what the intention was supposed to be. Um, and that's definitely the case with this. I think that's why I let her talk me out of doing it the way I initially wanted to do the scene. Just because like, I forgot why I wanted it to begin with. But at the same time, I also didn't want to come up with a new riddle and a new setup and a new scenario because every riddle is supposed to take him to a completely different location where he has a completely different encounter. So one encounter, he gets assaulted. One encounter is an attempt at seduction. Another encounter is just this agent walking along the sidewalk with him, telling him information that he doesn't quite understand. And it's just coming at him again and harder, hard, hard. And it's just like, oh, there's too much going on. I don't know how to make heads or tails of this. And ultimately, I guess it's to confuse and confuse him to a certain extent and see how he functions. It, does he stay on his toes or whatever? But uh, whatever. It, it keeps the movie interesting. And again, go weird or go home and always keep it interesting. And there's his next riddle. Uh, I realized that he forgot to take it with him when he left the room in a panic. So I said, well, you're going to have to get it to him. So just throw it out the window. <laughs> and again, uh, rather than reshooting the scene so he takes it with him, it gave us an opportunity to just have something different to make the movie a little more unique. See, that's the thing that I want. I want each section of the movie to stand on its own as being sort of a unique sort of experience. Uh, I look at this as a combination of a lot of short films or like I could extract any, any scene, put it up on YouTube, and it would stand alone as its own confined video. That's the idea with this. That was also the idea with Death in Life, where like everything was extractable. And that's how I'm also developing my monster movie. Everything will be extractable.
This is one of my favorite shots of the movie, though very difficult to color grade. I don't think I quite nailed the color grade on it, but that wide shot of him sitting against the yellow wall, which is a Popeye's chicken shop. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I like it. It's very urban. It became sort of the, the poster for some online videos. It's definitely the poster for the trailer and on IMDb. And stock aerial footage of Brooklyn again. I use so much stock footage. I couldn't afford the plane this year. Usually I would go up in an airplane and film aerials of New York City, which is what I wanted to do, but prices went up and my pilot that I was initially contracting just didn't want to fuck with me anymore. So I was like, all right, whatever. I'll just go get stock footage for this project. I think moving forward, though, I'm probably not going to use aerials. It's just too hard. Pilots are really just stingy about their time. And the black hole is at war with Evangeline and snooping around and spying on Artie. And that's, I like this idea too of having the point of view of the black hole. And it's, it's the same way I did the porthole in Death and Life when he's looking out the spaceship porthole. It's a piece of cardboard with a hole in it. It's the same thing, same effect. If if Art if uh, Tim were to walk up and pretend that he was looking out through the black hole, that could very well just be him looking out the porthole of a spaceship. Uh, I find it interesting though that this idea of using the same tricks for two different movies, but having it represent different ideas or be different scenarios uh, and here's Evangeline again <laughs> it's not meant to look like threatening it's not meant to look dope it's just meant to be and that's th that's what's important so her shield is just a piece of canvas that's been glitter painted her outfit is one of Jan's outfits from when she was in high school <laughs> The wings are very unimpressive. I actually was going to get her really impressive wings when it was supposed to be an actress playing the part, but I ultimately decided not to spring for the more expensive wings after she became a mannequin. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? What's the motto? The motto for death and life and the motto for fractals. Go weird or go home. I'm going to keep saying it. Remember, part of this commentary is direction on how to make a weird art house film that no one will watch. <laughs> and this is the first time we kind of see him interacting with the black hole. And it makes you wonder, when did this start? Because he seems really comfortable with it. <laughs> she, she's actually helping out with the riddle, telling him where to go next. The voice of the black hole, by the way, is Jan, who played Jane in Death and Life. She is the voice of the black hole. And we've had several experiences where people who have seen the movie but never met Jan will meet Jan for the first time and be like, oh, my God, you're the voice of the black hole. And she'd be like, you recognize my voice? They're like, yeah, that was a really unsettling performance. <laughs> That's, like I had the, the sound mixer for this movie who's based out of England he came over to New York this past fall to visit. And that's when we met really in person for the first time because all of his work on the film was remote. And his girlfriend recognized Jan's voice and she was, and she was just like taken aback by it. 
But, and that wasn't the first thing that has happened. I don't remember the last time that happened, but it's happened a few times. <laughs> anyway, the black hole is growing out of control. It's getting a lot of nerve. It's starting to have a dialogue with him. And it all represents something, whatever it means to you. I know what it means to me, but it can mean whatever it needs to mean to you to keep pushing forward in this. And he will then add the riddle to the shelf and go on to the next location, which I believe is Staten Island. Oh, there's my fourth wall break. Oh, Artie. That, was, that fourth wall break was out of the hope, it was derived with the hope that we would have a theatrical screening. But we didn't end up having a theatrical screening in any kind of way because of the goddamn pandemic. So now it just exists in a movie where it's really not necessary. Fourth wall breaks really only work in cinema environments, just so you guys know. This aerial of New York's lower Manhattan, I shot that myself with the original first generation Blackmagic HD camera, the one I've been talking about. That was from one of my various adventures up in a Cessna shooting aerials. And I recycled it for this movie because I really like that shot. And I love that I shot it. So the movie I initially shot it for no longer exists. It's my first really big failed production. It's what sent me on the path to creating art house cinema instead of mainstream cinema. So all the footage I had left over from that shoot, which wasn't a lot, uh, I just decided to recycle it. And that's one of the aerial pieces that I really liked. So in this, Artie is taking the ferry out to Staten Island. And there's a moment where his name is etched into a seat. That is actually on one of the seats. I think it's on the new house, which is one of the ferries in the fleet. Uh, it's on the first level, so the bottommost level where you can go as a passenger. Now, on the port side when you're heading towards Staten Island, and on the starboard side when you're heading towards Manhattan, there's a seat that has Artie's name sketched in it. It's been in there since uh, I've been in New York. Like We didn't do that for the movie. We just decided to film it since it was the same name. These elevated shots of Staten Island's North Shore was shot from... An apartment building there a friend of mine has a balcony and on the top floor of an apartment building it's the tallest building tallest residential building in staten island and he gave me a morning to go over there and shoot some footage with him so <laughs> that footage is from that shoot at the time i didn't know it was going to be for fractals again it's just one of those things where i shot random footage just for the sake of it and it just ended up being in fractals. I guess I just generate my own stock footage. We're on the north shore of Staten Island in a neighborhood called St. George. That weird white structure down the walkway there, that's the 9-11 memorial for Staten Island. If you were to look through it at the right angle, it would frame where the Twin Towers would have been. And now we are driving my first movie where I get to use my car. Well, I don't even have this car anymore, but this was my first car. It was a 2015 VW Passat. And uh, we said, well, if you're going to Staten Island, you get to drive. Even though they have the Staten Island Railway, it's very inconvenient. 
and I don't want to use it. So we're going to have some driving scenes. Uh, and it makes sense for Staten Island. People don't typically take public transit out there unless they're really, really poor. And for the first few years we lived out there, we took public transit because I didn't have my license. I only got my license and a car because I was living out there. So it's a necessity for Staten Island. So therefore, if he's going to Staten Island, he should drive. And the other thing too, it's, again, it's another thing where you switch up your scenes. Every time you go to a different borough, you have a different vibe, you have a different approach. Uh, it's, it's, everything just has to be a little bit different. So you know, you're not in the same place as before. You're not in Brooklyn. You're not in Flushing Meadows. You're not in Manhattan. Cause if you were, you wouldn't be driving. And this is the this is the thing about Staten Island that's like super strange. It has the most wooded areas of all of New York City. Like if you if you're in New York and you want to go hiking, you go to Staten Island. Like and that's basically what he's doing. He's just walking around the spot where I go hiking several times a week. <laughs> and ultimately though Staten Island is huge and the riddle just directs him to Staten Island in general. So I said, well, it doesn't make sense for you to find the riddle right away because you could basically fit Manhattan inside Staten Island. So he's going to have to get a little more help to know where to find the riddle more precisely. And so we said, well, we'll give him a day or a night, then he'll go back. And if he still doesn't find it, Elena's character will come and help him out. And that's what she attempts to do. This is where we bring back uh, fractals again. And we, we start going into the nature of reality and this idea of identifying sort of the underpinning lattice that makes up reality. We're introducing the idea of what the organization that's recruiting him is actually up to. And again, we're, we have special effects stock footage of galaxies and uh, I'm not particular, I don't have a particular aversion to stock footage. I would prefer not to have to use it, but generating original footage can be really expensive if you don't have certain things. So I don't have a pilot's license or a piece or, or an aircraft. So therefore generating aerial footage is really expensive for me. I don't have proper experience or enough experience with after effects so generating visual effects footage isn't easy enough for me to make it worthwhile so often i'll either have to contract it out to somebody who's willing to work with my out-of-pocket budget or i'll have to just buy it in this case i just bought the galaxy shot it's not exactly what i had envisioned but it works again more footage from that apartment building in saint george that was the same day that I shot it. Oh, yeah. So it's not even the next day. This guy is going back day after day after day. It's like Groundhog Day. Basically, in this recruitment process, he is essentially stuck out in Staten Island. <laughs> he has to go back every day until he finds that riddle. Oh, this footage uh, going alongside the pier, that was actually shot when I went on a lighthouse cruise. So the Lighthouse Museum in Staten Island... Yeah, they have a National Lighthouse Museum. <laughs> they go, they have these cruises where you can go out to all these different lighthouses around New York Harbor, or at least the Outer Harbor. And I had gone out there to film 
because I was doing a micro documentary on the museum, which you can see on my YouTube channel. And they said, after I did the documentary interviews, they're like, hey, do you want to come and shoot some footage from the ferry? We're going on a cruise. And I'm like, sure. It's basically just a booze cruise where uh, some guy on a PA system talks about all the different lighthouses. <laughs> it was fun. But that's what that shot was from. So you can you can go to my YouTube channel and watch the National Lighthouse Museum micro documentary. That's what that was for. And there's Elena because it's clear that he needs help. She's starting to follow him around. All that whispering that you hear in this scene coming up, just that's a device that I stole directly directly from Lost. I love this idea of just being in the woods and hearing whispering and indecisive whispering. That's my favorite part of Lost. <laughs> so I'm like, I have to steal that. It's so weird. Um, and essentially, we shot the scene where the whispering is happening to him. And, she, and the whispering is essentially Elena saying, go to the water. Go, go to the North Shore. That's where the riddle is. It's not in the woods. It's by the water. Um, and we shot the scene without her, where he was just hearing whispering. And then we shot the same blocking but with her kind of pushing at him and screaming into his ear. And so the idea was he only experiences whispering from an unseen entity, but then when he sees Elena in his job interview, he immediately flashes back to this moment where he sees her screaming into his ear. But I couldn't make it work in the edit. Um, I think I'd lost patience with the idea. So I just kind of let it go. And it's just disembodied whispering indefinitely, but it's really just supposed to be Elena on some other plane of reality, giving him the information he needs. But with, with Tim, I followed the same guidelines as I did with Michael on death and life where Rather than worrying about the wardrobe for each specific day, I just had him wear the same thing every single day. I just, I just said, don't change your wardrobe. It doesn't matter. It's not that important. Uh, all the important parts of the story have nothing to do with continuity and all that. So he wears the same thing every day because it's just easier in the edit. <laughs> it's just easier all around. And if you look at Mike in Death and Life, he doesn't change his outfit either. He doesn't. He didn't even wash it. For the two months we shot Death and Life, in the summer in New York City, he never washed his clothes once. It was the same outfit until we wrapped. Then he brought his clothes to the laundromat. And I think it was the same thing with Tim. He never washed his clothes for the month of July. So actually we're right outside the, light, the National Lighthouse Museum, that's where this pier is. And you can actually go out there. Half of the pier has been gated off since the pandemic. But I have other scenes from other projects that were shot on the end of that pier. And this is ultimately where I decided to have him find the Staten Island Riddle. Just because it's so weird looking and unique and you get the Staten Island Ferry Fleet at birth right next to it. Um, this is also the, the National Lighthouse Museum. This is where they used to make the Fresnel lenses for the lighthouses. That's why the museum is there. Like all those Fresnel lenses were made there. 
And a lot of the parts that they made for lighthouse maintenance for like 200 years was made there. So I don't know. He talks about lighthouses later on and needing a light to know what to do and all that. The saddest thing is the lighthouse without a light. That's what he says when he's in Rockaway Beach. So it can you know, I, again, we're just out there feeling our way through this movie. We're playing around with threads. By the way, the Statue of Liberty right there, that's a lighthouse. A lot of people don't realize that. That is technically a lighthouse. Isn't that interesting? But uh, this guy is looking for guidance. He's looking for light. And so that was one of the through lines that I was trying to play with. Rent due. Everybody hates getting that notice. <laughs> I wonder what his landlord's charging him for that shitty fucking rat-infested, bug-infested basement. Basement apartment. Yeah, that's the entryway to the basement area. The basement of our building has multiple levels. That's the first level. And then you go down another level where you go to his area. But yeah, there were there was another scene in that hallway he was just in that I ended up cutting out of the movie where he's on the phone with his mom. And uh, his mom was voiced by my sister, Missy. And she still has a credit on IMDb, but uh, she was ultimately cut from the movie. But I, I, I plan on putting all the cut scenes on my YouTube channel at some point. See, his, his, his riddles have added up. Oh, that's the only piece of stock footage I bought that's actually in high definition and not 4K. All my other stock footage was 4K. But that one shot of New York City was high definition. And I bought it through Vimeo, or I, I leased it through Vimeo. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I just really liked it. I liked it enough that I was willing to up-res it or upscale it. <laughs> Because all the 4K versions that were similar were just either too expensive or didn't have, it just wasn't quite right. Also, that shot was reversed. It was actually, um, the helicopter was moving in the opposite direction. I reversed it, though. When I buy stock footage, I always try to manipulate it in some form or another by either reversing it, inversing it, uh, definitely color grading it. I don't want it to look like the same footage that people would see if they were to go to the stock footage website uh, and download it. Because it's just too obvious, you know? Again, he's getting help from the the black hole, which is bleeding blackness all over his beautiful white brick walls. <laughs> and... Uh, the black hole is also getting blacker and gooier. And the way I achieved this was accidental. Uh, I ended up needing close-ups of the black hole like this canvas, but I'd forgotten to shoot it when we were in the basement. However, on the original shoot, when we were upstairs with the original cast, I shot all the inserts of the canvas when it was still fresh paint. So when it cuts into those ultra close-ups and the paint looks kind of wet, that's actually footage shot from the original shoot in my apartment. It's not in the basement at all. And you'll see that more and more, 
especially when Evangeline, the angel, is battling the black hole, um, which happens towards the latter half of the movie or the latter quarter of the movie. Uh, a lot of the battle scenes were shot in my apartment, not down in the basement. So, yeah, I think the the storied sort of way this film was executed just makes it so complex. And there's so many moments that I forget. You know, I, I forget what was originally shot and what was part of the July 2020 shoot. Oh, yeah, that's his nightmare. Again, It's this is Jan that's always appearing in the nightmares. Since Jan voices the black hole, it makes sense that she would appear as the nightmare. They're sort of simpatico. <laughs> I, I just, it was important for me to have a cloaked figure haunting him. Cloaked figures are creepy as fuck. <laughs> and then we cut to the same doorway with him waking up. And it's just Kate... Like, hey, we got to bring her back just to make things interesting so that we know that he has an advocate who's interested in him. And I once, actually, there were a couple of times where I had to live in a basement apartment uh, and I didn't like it either time. And I remember one time, and you can read about this in my short story, Fritz, which is publicly available. Or no, not Fritz. Uh, Squatterism at High Noon. That's the name of the story. It is publicly available. Uh, I talk about being a squatter in a building called 12 Warren Street. And at one point during that experience, I was relegated to the basement, cut off from all my, my possessions, which were locked away on like the fifth floor. And uh, I remember a friend coming over and knocking on the door just like that. He's like, oh, you got your own apartment. I'm like, no, I don't. I have a cold, dingy basement that's creepy as fuck. <laughs> uh, that's what that scene reminds me of. That moment when this guy came over and be like, hey, you got your own apartment. Oh, I wish. This is nothing. This is like so, in, I feel so insecure and homeless right now. You should read that story. That's called Squatterism at High Noon. About the one month I was a squatter at 12 Warren Street, which has since been replaced by a condominium I will never be able to afford. Uh, it was an old industrial loft at one point, where a lot of squatters lived, actually. So this is a scene where the black hole attempts to interact with Kate and... We don't know if she hears the black hole or not. I told her in my direction to her, the black hole is talking to you, but you're not giving back. We will never know if you hear the black hole or not, and it could go either way. And I feel like I achieved that. I don't quite remember what I was going for with that direction or why I took it in that direction. But I'm sure it has something to do with the way depression affects those close to you. They know there's something wrong, but they can't quite interact with it because they don't know what it is. Or maybe they don't know how to interact with it. And so that's sort of how I've been thinking about it over the past year. Because when we were making the movie, and certainly when I wrote the essays for the movie, I wasn't 100% convinced about what I was going for. 
but I just kind of stuck with my instincts on it. And that's kind of how I'm thinking about it these days, but who knows, maybe my interpretation will evolve over the years. But I do think it's important though, that the black hole interact with somebody other than Artie and Evangeline. By the way, Evangeline, the angel, my, my nephew Madison named her that. I, I texted my sister Missy and I said, I'm, re I'm replacing an actress with a mannequin and I need a name for the, for the mannequin. And she asked Madison, my nephew, and he's like, Evangeline. And I said, okay, her name is Evangeline. And to this day, you can go on IMDb and her name is Evangeline in the credits her name is Evangeline because my nephew named her Evangeline. I like this idea of just like framing them up with the shards of the black hole, all that 20 ounce canvas dipped in black, surrounding them at every angle, framing them up with depression and the black hole watching them from the apartment. So this is the vantage point from the door to the backyard, which connects to his basement apartment. Uh, the reason it looks like we're looking at them, looking at them through the, through the black hole is because the idea is the black hole is watching them. It's the same door he came out of when he was talking with Birdie earlier in the movie. And uh, I didn't move the camera at all. I kept it inside the doorway so that the black hole will never have a privileged view of the world. The black hole's only view of the world will always be from within that apartment. That's sort of the really the only logic I embraced <laughs> in this whole movie of illogical fallacies was that the black hole cannot move from his personal space when it looks into the outside out to the outside world or into the outside world. Uh, it always does so from the doorway because there are no windows in this basement apartment. Don't know if you noticed that. The window just goes to a darker part of the basement where he sleeps. So, yeah. The only natural light is the light in the backyard whenever the door is open. All this audio was recorded on a rainy day using lavalier mics and one shotgun mic on the camera at a, I still have it. It's a Sennheiser shotgun mic mounted to the camera and they were laved and the labs wirelessly broadcast to an H6 recorder. Actually, it might've been an H4N recorder. I have both. So I always forget what I was using when, but Yeah, this is all their natural audio. They didn't do any ADR for it. Uh, it was all just improvised and riffing. It feels like they're riffing. I would never write dialogue that loose. I don't, I don't know anybody that would. If you want loose, natural conversation, just have your actors riff. It's just easier. It's better. It's more efficient, and it's quite effective. Actually, my sound mixer was like, are they just making this up? And I'm like, yeah, they're riffing. That's my favorite way to go about things because it's so natural. 
He's like, yeah, it feels like real. Like you're spying on them. I'm like, well, no, the black hole spying on them. You know what I mean? Anyway, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really tired. It's 1130 PM. Oh, it's past my bedtime and we're nowhere near the end of this movie. <laughs> so this is a, a, a moment that I had in mind for a long time where from his vantage point, he's filming the shore with his cell phone. And then from the shore, his soul is watching their boat leave. The problem is, is you can't see them on the boat because they weren't on the boat. But the idea is they're supposed to be on the boat. And he has that disembodied experience where his soul is watching from the shore as his body is filming the shore. This is a, an idea that I think I might have to try re-exploring down the road because it didn't quite execute it well here. But uh, it does happen to me. I do, you know, when I'm out filming random footage for it to someday wind up in a movie, <laughs> like this footage here, uh, I'll, often, I'll often have a, a sort of experience where I see myself filming. Not that I, I'm having an out-of-body experience, but I always think about, like, what do I look like filming from another perspective? You know, if I was on Governor's Island filming the same boat, what would I look like? I'd probably look like a tourist, but you know what I mean. There's always opportunities to explore, you know, the creative experience. And that's what I'm trying to do. So all this was filmed in my apartment in the first leg of the shoot that ended up collapsing in on itself because of the pandemic. I just decided, you know what? Fuck it. Like, why should I refilm everything? Especially scenes like that where they're close-ups. You can't tell it's not the basement. You can't tell really the space at all. So I might as well just use that. And then at least some part of that first shoot wasn't a complete waste. I've been on this ferry to Rockaway so many times. I love the view of Coney Island in Brooklyn from the water. It's gorgeous. That's that same pier that he was on before. <laughs> I love the idea of like, we're kind of looking back at where he was, you know, but from the water this time. He's on his way to Rockaway Beach, which is a peninsula in Queens. It sort of wraps around Brooklyn but it's technically in Queens and you could take a ferry there. You can also take a train, but I decided not to take a train. Uh, this is all about the ferry system, this movie. NYC has this wonderful city ferry system that takes you to all the different boroughs. Oh, we got the slider shot. See these slider shots. Like, let me tell you something. They're a bitch to set up, so I don't really use them that much. I used them a few times in this movie. Always in the basement because when I was in the basement, you know, I had a lot of time to do setups and to fuck around for a little bit. I mean, we had a week and a day, right? But then also in the apartment, for the apartment shoot, I did some slider work, especially with the angel and going under her wing and things like that. And it was largely just experimenting with it because I'm not really good with sliders. But uh, I really wanted to get some use out of it, and so... I'm glad I did. <laughs> Adds a little bit of uh, visual flair to the drama. So this is our Rockaway day. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but when we were commuting to Rockaway, it was always from his POV because uh, I couldn't get both of them on the ferry together. <laughs> so 
we basically just drove out to Rockaway one day, filmed all this stuff, and then I had to piecemeal the journey together. <sighs> it is what it is. But this is where he talks about the lighthouse without a light. Again, it's, it's actually not the first time I've written that sentence. I wrote a short story called Fritz, where the end, the main character or the narrator talks about a lighthouse without a light. Um, I think I'm obsessed with that metaphor or that visual. But I found my way to Rockaway by way of a film called Rhythm Thief by Matt Harrison. It's one of my favorite independent films. Uh, and it's a movie that I watch before going into any production because it's just so... I, I think it's one of the most perfect indie street films I've ever seen. And I actually interviewed Matt Harrison for my YouTube channel at one point. And um, actually, I've interviewed him a couple times. And... Uh, he had a scene in Rockaway Beach, so I decided, you know what? I'm going to honor that movie, and I'm going to go to Rockaway Beach. That's going to be one of the locations where Artie is supposed to go. But he doesn't find the riddle. That's why this location is special. Cause, because he, and so the idea is that because he brought Kate with him, that he's too distracted to see that the riddle is right there. He didn't even have to go all the way to the beach. He could have just disembarked the ferry, found it on the, on the seat there, and that would have been that. But no, because he's distracted, they decided to go for a walk to the beach, and he didn't see it. He, he didn't even see it walking back. Now he's panicking about it. This part was hard to make work. Um, I was really worried that connecting the Rockaway sequence to this was too big of a jump, that we needed something in between, but nah, in retrospect, I think it's it's the perfect pace. It's actually more movie paced than I think it would have been otherwise. Like, had this been death in life, there would have been a whole big commentary about that would have taken us from one to the other. This is somewhere on the east side. Again, it's the same day that we shot the anthology stuff, that we shot him finding that first riddle, um, seeing the eyes, the graffiti eyes. That was that same day. And we're back to the face-off between the angel and the black hole. Again, all shot in my apartment. And then Jess and Dean from the beginning of the movie his friends that torment him. I think the, the depression of the black hole is uh, bringing the stuff from the surface that the, the knee-jerk comments that they say, whether in jest or not, live rent-free in the creative's mind. And every creative who's ever dealt with normal people who don't understand the creative life may have dealt with people like that. And that their asshole comments may still live rent-free in their minds. Those are the people I'm trying to reach out to and be like, hey, you're not alone. I get you. I understand you. And I only use it now, though, because I need to drive him so fucking batshit insane. I need to get him to the point of so much anger that he starts cursing God. And what better way to do that than to kill Birdie? So not only not only is Bertie dead, but somehow, some way, Bertie wound up inside his apartment. <laughs> I don't know how. I think maybe the black hole is a jerk. Maybe that's how. 
But yeah, this was fun actually recording the last, it was actually the very last thing we shot was, was them just throwing insults into the camera. <laughs> like break the fourth wall and just start telling Artie some of the worst things. And, at, you know, I think at one point they tell him to go suicide himself. Like all that is improvised. And it's just like, that was literally the very last thing I shot on the movie with any of the actors. Uh, we toasted after that. Um, actually we toasted after those two went home. We sent, I think we sent Leo home with a case of beer, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then after they were gone, uh, Avis, Tim, Jan, and myself, we all toasted and that was the end of production. I think I probably picked up a little bit of B-roll here and there, but for the most part, the movie was shot. I took August off. Uh, you know, July was such a hard shoot that I didn't do anything in August. I didn't even do the first pass assembly. I was just like checked out. I was like, all right, that's it. After trying to do the film and then the pandemic shutting us down and then finally doing the film, I need a break. And so I actually didn't officially start editing this thing until September of 2020. And it took me almost a year. Actually, it took me about a year. I vaguely remember... Uh, finishing the movie almost to the day of a year to the day that we wrapped production on principal photography. Like, so it was the longest post-production of any project, mainly by design. I really wanted to take my time with it because it's such a, a complicated, weird movie. I love the, the, the special effect of Artie falling through the portal to reality proper essentially the non-movie reality and looking out into reality at me <laughs> it's so like like there's a meta thing going on here right obviously but that he's just an action figure <laughs> that i painted to look like the wardrobe that he's been wearing for the whole movie with a shoddy sort of green screen effect and it's the only visual effect uh, that I made. All the other visual effects were made by my sound mixer, Scott. But that was the one that I decided to do because I hadn't done compositing work since high school and I wanted to kind of brush up on it. So that was the one I decided to experiment with. This is a split screen effect where I essentially um, just take the visual effect of the light and I split screen it and put it over one side of the canvas. But I did, I shot my dialogue through the canvas, but I didn't like how I looked. The, le the lens for some reason made me look more plump than I was, or maybe I was plump, but I didn't want to own up to it. But either way, I did not want that documentation of how I looked. So I said, well, if I'm a deity, even if I'm just a film deity, I should be glowing with light. So, and this is all footage, just a montage of footage of my past work. And of course, death and life is included there. Lipstick lies, which I mentioned earlier, my first feature film that I made in high school called 16 stories. My first award-winning film, Carolina, Virginia, that, that is all in here. And I also stepped through all the different music scores from those projects. Because technically they're all my content anyway, so.
because it's a sort of self-criticism or commentary on the worlds we create as creative storytellers, creative storytellers. Um, this was a weird scene to do. I didn't really want to do it. Anytime I have to appear on camera or record with other people, I don't actually want to do it. I love the idea of doing it. It's weird that I have a podcast, right? Where I interview people. Like I want to do it until I have to do it. <laughs> Once I'm obligated to do it, I really don't want to do it. Isn't that weird? Is There's got to be other people in media who are like that. Like, Maybe they like the idea of having that conversation, but once they realize that they have to wake up in the morning and prepare for a public conversation, <sighs> do I really have to do it? Anyway, ever since this project, though, I've actually been doing acting for other other films, which is like really weird, because I actually enjoy that. Maybe I just don't like doing it for myself, because I have so much other stuff I have to do. But I like this whole meta idea of just like saying, hey, you know, I, I designed you to go through this journey so that I could convey a through line. And so I'm going to take care of you because I take care of all of my main characters, which, by the way, isn't true. It's a total fucking lie. Um, <laughs> I've killed off so many of my main characters. It's not even funny. Um, in my first movie, every single one of them died in an elevator accident at the end of the movie. So like it is total bullshit. But I'm just like, go through the journey and trust the process. And so this is, the, this is where the commentary on free will comes in because if you've seen the movie, you, you'll know that he doesn't take the job. I tell him he'll take the job. And that's how he'll be all right. But he doesn't take the job, which means he doesn't do what I've programmed him to do. Yet at the same time I have because I made the movie, so... Yeah, maybe free will is a farce or maybe people just don't know what they're meant for. There's so many ways to interpret this. Did you did you see that friendship bracelet on Evangeline's wrist? Jan made that for her <laughs> at my request. So close up of Midtown from a distance. I love shooting skylines from far away on a long lens they look really interesting that way and shooting manhattan on a long lens from rockaways oh, it's so gorgeous again that's why it's the title page but also like that close-up of midtown even though it's not even a close-up there it is again it's not a close-up but i'm on a close-up lens but it's so far away that it's still like oh. look that's all of midtown just right there in one shot where else can you get that? It's remarkable, really. You would need an ultra-wide lens if you were in Weehawk, and, and it wouldn't look the same. It wouldn't have the same effect. So when I first assembled the movie, the tent music for this sequence was Independence Day, when in that piece of music when... They're going around the world coordinating an airstrike using Morse code. That's the music I used for the sequence. And it was so fucking perfect that I had issues supplementing it for Lindell's actual score. <laughs> because when it goes to the aerial of the Empire State Building, that's when the, the sort of Russian vocals, those deep vocals come in. If you listen to it, 
those of you who know movie scores probably know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it was it was really delightful having that piece of music in the movie as it was a work in progress. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, happened earlier that I didn't think to mention was when Artie comes back from reality proper and is dumped back into the Rockaways to get the final riddle. One, that's obviously just me helping him out because I wanted to get through this movie. <laughs> uh, again, another meta thing happening. But it transitions between all these different color grades. Uh, it goes from a two-strip color grade to a three-strip color grade to uh, a standard sort of black magic regular uh, color grade. Uh, and, and the reason I did that was because I wanted to step through the history of cinema from a color grade standpoint uh, as he's transitioning from reality proper to the movie where he belongs in. So he goes from the, uh, in the of course, these are all emulations. So we're emulating two strip film, two strip color film, three strip color film. And then eventually we get to the Da Vinci, whatever the Da Vinci grade is supposed to be like the standard da vinci one um da vinci resolve because we're shooting on black magic and now i think inside here now we're in the empire state building supposedly it's actually ripley greer studios in new york city uh, i colored it back down to two strip technicolor because i wanted i wanted to i was pursuing this idea where inside their space isn't quite in reality proper, but it's also not quite in the movie's reality. So there's sort of an in-between vestibule, so to speak. And so as, again, I, I might be overreaching in terms of what I was trying to do, but I've done it, so it is, it is what it is. But as he's transitioning from one reality to the other, you go through all those color patterns. But then when he goes into this vestibule where he's essentially being interviewed for a job, He's back to two-strip Technicolor, which also has been heavily graded down to not quite a sepia, but it's it's pretty damn close. I don't remember specifically all of the layers of filters that I have on it, but I guess I could go back into Resolve and take a look, but I'm not going to do that. You know how I know I really care about these movies, Death and Life and Fractals? They're the only movies I've made that I held onto the project files and all the raw footage. Like with all the content that, that I produced on tape, yes, I still have most of the raw footage, uh, but I don't have the project files. So if I wanted to rebuild those projects or, or clean them up in any kind of way or restore them in any kind of way, I'm going to I'd have to recapture all the tapes and start the projects from scratch. Whereas with these two films, I saved all that data. I saved the timeline, the, the, the timelines in XML format. Um, I never wiped the drives. So the, the projects have been duplicated onto two separate drives, which I just keep archived. Um, and that's really telling because hard drive space can be really expensive. Like the drives that I use, the G drives, they're not cheap. But that's how I know I, I really love these movies because I'm not willing to let go of the project files at all. 
Here's Evangeline's death. It's so brutal, but pretty. Brutal, but pretty. <laughs> Thanks to Scott for creating that effect for us. I found Scott through Fiverr, and we ended up becoming pretty good friends. He's the guy from England who came to New York this past autumn, and uh, I met him when I was restoring my short film Hero for a Day. I initially hired him on Fiverr to create some muzzle flashes for a gun shooting scene, <laughs> which uh, actually appears earlier in the film when we're going through the montage of my past, my past cinema work. And then he told me he was into sound. And I said, well, why don't you help me with the sound for my restoration? Because I'd really like to do a proper sound mix as much as we can, given the fact that it's an amateur movie. And he, so he helped me with the sound mix for Hero for a Day for the 20th anniversary, 20th anniversary screening, which uh, I actually did an episode on. So you should go back and watch that. It's somewhere in season three. Um, it's a commentary episode for Hero for a Day. And then, you know, I liked working with him. I thought he was really chill and easy to work with, unlike a lot of the other freelancers here in the city. So I said, when I get around to doing the sound mix for Fractals and maybe even some of the visual effects, let's talk again. And so not going through Fiverr, I made deals with him outside of those that, that website to do the visual effects or most of the visual effects and to also help me with the sound mix. I did the whole sound design myself, though. Um, he basically just made it sound like it's part of the same movie. <laughs> um, which is not something I'm capable of because I just don't have the ears for it. But I'd say I'm a, I, I'm a decent enough sound designer. I went out and I recorded all my own ambience. I recorded the trains. You can get, actually, you can get a lot of that ambience and a lot of those train sounds effect, sound effects through free sound. I uploaded a lot of the sounds I generated for this movie and I donated them to Freesound just because, you know, I believe in the power of creative collaboration. So if you like any of the sounds in this movie, just go to Freesound and download them and use them in your movie. I don't mind. Um, that was really actually really important to me. Uh, it was a commitment I made in post-production. I said, well, if I'm doing all the sound design... Any, any unique piece of ambience or sound effect that I create will be donated to Freesound. And I did that more or less to protest the people who are unwilling to help me. Because I do try to find collaborators to help me, but you know the freelance community here in New York is really bitter. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to set an example. Not only am I going to figure out how to do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it as well as I can. And then... Whatever I generate will be no donated to people who also are having trouble finding people to help them out. And so that's what I did. I know it sounds better, but it's not. It's more just me trying to set an example for what I expect creative collaboration to be like. Anyway, this is where Artie's like, fuck you all. You make no sense. You have the power to change reality, but you can't pay a living wage. <laughs> Which is like my commentary on those big companies that don't pay dick squat. I, you can tell too that like I've had issues in the past with employers. Like I don't see what the big problem is. You know, as soon as I was able to afford to pay people, I did. Every actor on this got paid. Everybody who helped me out got paid. 
So it's just like, but also like I was thinking about like PPE, right? Every actor on this got a gift bag with PPE, masks, sanitizer, shit like that. If I, a person on an out-of-pocket budget, can give all my actors PPE, certainly a Fortune 500 company can give their colleagues PPE if they're expected to work in the thick of a pandemic. Anyway, that's that's what was going through my mind in this era, and especially when we were shooting in this room, because technically we all had to be masked because we were filming in a studio that other people were working in. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to Ripley Greer Studios in New York, but you essentially rent a studio and other people rent the studio next to you and so on and so forth. And so you're not alone. Also, it's not soundproof. Luckily, though, uh, not luckily, but like, you know, it was the right time. It was a pandemic. So there wasn't really anybody there, but there were a few people. Usually, when times are good, you'll go there and you'll hear dancing, you'll hear singing, you'll hear people rehearsing their Broadway shows, because that's what that place is for. It's really just to rehearse Broadway shows. But I, I usually go there to meet with actors about being in my projects, and just to sit down with them and pitch them my ideas about what I want to do and see if they're game. That's where I met Elena. That's where I met the guy he encounters outside the library. I first met both of them at Ripley Greer. And so he's overcoming his anxiety, his depression, which essentially kills the black hole and restores his space. Basic effect. You just film the space before you destroy it. And then the, the space after you destroy it. And then you do a flash dissolve. <laughs> Stock footage of the Brooklyn Bridge. And this is like my favorite part of the movie where he's just like, I don't have to have the story everybody expects me to have. I don't have to be in New York and quote unquote make it. Why can't I just be in New York? Because I like New York. Why can't I be in New York and just pursue the art life the way I want to pursue it? You know, and this is like sort of my philosophy is people are too busy with careerism, trying to build a career fuck your career. Just pursue the art life. Build an art practice that fits in with the life that you want and just create, man. That's what this is all about, really. Death and Life and Fractals together as sister films of one another, that's what these two movies are about. It's about just why it's important to forget expectations and just pursue the life you want fit this into the life you want. And if you don't see it fitting into the life you want, do you really want to do it? And in this Artie realizes that, yes, I still want to do it and I still want to do it here, but I don't want to do it in the context that society expects me to do it. And we all have, especially all us creatives have that struggle, right? Oh, look at that. That's me. That's me shooting that aerial footage. <laughs> um, you know, we go to Thanksgiving, you know, I remember going to Thanksgiving after I moved to New York, right? And the question is, is, are you getting work? And if you're not getting work, well, when are you coming back? When are you going to move on from this pipe dream? Those are the questions they want you to answer. And 
See that New Yorkine dead? That was a big thing in the era that I shot this. A certain someone wrote an article saying that New York was dead. That didn't sit well with me. So I protested with New York Ain't Dead. And that was a visual effect, by the way. That was one of the visual effects that Scott did. Unplanned. It came right out of the zeitgeist of the air. <laughs> I'm like, I got this one more shot I want to do. <laughs> I think I shot the template for it with... Uh, I guess that was the 6K. I probably shot that the same day we shot all that walking stuff during this montage. If not, then I probably went out as a separate day and shot it with the original Blackmagic. But I don't remember. I'd have to go into the raw footage to know for sure. That's original Blackmagic HD footage right there. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking that maybe it is because uh, that's original Blackmagic footage too. So maybe, I don't know. We'll see. A lot of this, though, is original Blackmagic footage because it's so much easier to walk around New York with a small HD camera rather than a 6K digital cinema camera. Stock footage. <laughs> Stock footage. Don't know why I didn't get Lyndall to do any of this stuff because she does paint and she does write music. But it was easier just to get stock footage. Now we're up in uh, Wallkill, New York in the Hudson River Valley. And that's Jan uh, pretending to be uh, the aspiring author. Mike Rader, who made the communication device in Death and Life. I said, I need you to be a paint flinging artist. And he's like, I don't fling paint, but I'll paint for you. So we put some uh, clear stuff over the lens and he just painted over it. <laughs> and then we're back in Chelsea, which is where a lot of death and life was filmed. And I'm like, we're just going to have you jump for joy with the Empire State Building behind you, brother. And uh, Fractals became a treatise sort of in post-production. I never called it a treatise until I was in post-production. And as I was editing it, I kind of realized that that's exactly what it was. So I dedicated the film to over 3 million people who died during the COVID-19 pandemic. They didn't get to live the lives that they dreamed of living. Um, all those people didn't have to die. It was just so poorly managed at the federal level under Trump that they did. So it was important to me that I acknowledge them. This film was made in the thick of the pandemic. Uh, and so it was just, I don't know, it's just... It was a marker of just a dark era. And it was this is me trying to put some positive light, leave some sort of positive light behind. Say, hey, you know, even though it's dark... Even though it's a dark era, we were trying to do something. Literally working with light to bring light into the darkness. I had people send me the videos they wanted for this end sequence. They did not disappoint. <laughs> I love the cat there. And James gets his own, his own credit. Lindell, she scored Death and Life and Fractals. Jan, there she is. There's us with our masks, so people know that we wore masks. Scott sent his in. <laughs> He's taller in real life than he looks there. There's me. 
<laughs> shooting myself in the head with my camera. <laughs> and a special thank you credit for being allowed to use the song No Sense, which really makes this the, the music of this movie pop. I got to tell you, I'm so glad I was able to do that. I've, I'd wanted to do that for years. Use that song as the root of a score in a movie. And I'm so glad it was this one. I thank my neighbors. <laughs> oh, these are the guys that I hired through um, Fiverr. As well as, um, I think Jared was the sound recordist for one of our remote performers. I always give a free credit. Uh, I always give a credit to Free Sound because I'm really thankful for that service. I tell you, that thing has saved my ass so many times. That's why I I dumped all of my 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 generate my sound generations to the platform after the project wrapped because I'm just I felt like I needed to give back. It's such a wonderful project for creative people. And I credit all the archival media that I used including my back catalog of work. And, of course, the music scores to those various projects and the composers who did them. Technically, we did film in all five boroughs, even if um, we didn't have specific scenes in all five boroughs. And my little bit of a lecture to big, big corporations... Boom. Toast. And I always post data film to the next year. So. so that's it. You've watched Fractals with me. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you hadn't watched Death and Life before, go watch that too. Because uh, Death and Life and Fractals are sister films of one another. That's why I did the commentaries together. These might not be the last commentaries. I'm actually really tired right now. It's almost midnight so I was kind of shutting down in the latter third of the movie, but I think as a first commentary uh, for both of these films, th this was a pretty good set of podcast episodes. You can get both Fractals and Death and Life through Prime Video. I urge you to purchase them. They're only $5 a piece, I believe, uh, which is not bad for kind of having, for not, it's not bad for like owning a digital download of a movie. Right. So like you're paying $10 for two movies. Um, you'd be supporting an independent filmmaker. You'd be bringing us up just in terms of the algorithm. So I'm going to leave a link to in the show notes or in the description if you're watching it on YouTube. And of course, you can always go to my website, ericnorkars.com, where all the streaming platforms for the most part will be listed, except for the more obscure ones that I don't know that well. Anyway, I'll uh, see you on the next episode. As we go into May, there will be two more episodes, and then we'll be on summer hiatus. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.